Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming to my presentation this afternoon on Buddhism and the Art of Happiness. Now, when I set out to put this presentation together, I had been practicing Buddhism for about 30 years. So I had a pretty good idea of Buddhist thought, Buddhist ideology, Buddhist practice. But what about happiness, right? I mean, I knew that these teachings allowed me to be a happier person, but, well, how does one really define that? It seemed kind of ephemeral in a way. So that was my conundrum, defining happiness. So what does one do in the 21st century when they can't define something? Google, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I went to Google and I asked Google about happiness. And I was pleased to discover that, well, I wasn't the only one who had had this question. And as it turns out, in 1996, the American Medical Association teamed up with Harvard University. They opened what is now known as the Positive Psychology Studies. And these studies set out to define happiness. And they found that, well, happiness could be defined. They came to the definition of happiness being a subjective state of joy. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> that still seems pretty ephemeral to me, subjective state of joy. So I did a little bit more digging, and it turned out that the people who claimed to be living in this subjective state of joy, well, they seemed to have very similar life experiences. It seemed as if their life was on unfolding for them in a rather effortless way. If they had particular goals set aside, those goals seemed to reach fruition without a lot of struggle, a lot of pushing. If they were superstitious, they might have said, the stars were aligned. Or if they were particularly religious, they could have said, God was on my side. Now I did a little bit more digging, and it turned out that these studies seemed to show that people were born with a set point a baseline for happiness. This subjective state of joy seemed to be given to people at birth. Well, that begs the question, right? If my happiness is a genetic disposition, then what's the point? Why even try being happier at all? Is there anything we can do to raise that potential for happiness? And these studies actually looked at several different techniques that are often thought to raise one's baseline for happiness. I'm only going to talk about the five that pertain to the presentation this afternoon. The first technique that these doctors and scientists looked at is the technique of a cognitive therapy. And just in case you're not familiar with cognitive therapy, what that is, it's, well, when a person has a distorted view of reality, they might go to a cognitive therapist and that therapist will help them change their reality so their view accurately reflects what other people are seeing. Good example of that. Uh, let's take the anorexic, right? They look at their body in the mirror, they see their bodies being quite overweight, when in fact they're actually very thin. A cognitive therapist will help them see their body more accurately. And these studies clearly showed that cognitive therapy does, in fact, raise one's potential for happiness. And I mention that because I think as this presentation unfolds, you'll actually see the Buddha was something of a cognitive therapist himself. Well, then they looked at our 
life circumstances. And so let's say we're cruising through life, but don't Bad joke, I know, I got a new writer coming in next week. So we're cruising through life <laughs> and we experience some sort of tragedy. We lose a job, we lose a loved one, so forth. We'll drop below that set point for happiness for a while. But then there's actually a recovery and we recover back to where we left off. It also works in the other direction. If you're, again, cruising through life, huh? and then you experience some sort of windfall, maybe you win the lottery or you get a promotion, you might rise above that baseline for happiness for a while, but then you drop back to where you started. So these studies actually showed that our life circumstance, that doesn't really touch that baseline for happiness too much. Interesting. Well, then they looked at our day-to-day -day choices. You know, the little pleasures in life, going to, going to the beach or having a nice dinner or going to see a talk on Buddhism. <laughs> these little choices that spark our pleasures in life. And they saw that these don't actually increase that baseline for happiness either. That's also quite interesting. Then they looked at the idea of helping others. And this is quite beautiful. They found in this study that as we help others be happy, we ourselves become happier. That's quite lovely, right? So if you want to increase your potential for happiness, help other people be happy. That's right in line with the Buddha's teachings. And then the last technique that I'll talk about is the technique of meditation. And these studies clearly showed that a good, healthy meditation practice can in fact raise one's potential for happiness. And I think you probably all know that the teachings of the Buddha are steeped in the practices of meditation. Now when the Buddha was 29 years old, he was gifted with a question. And that question is, what is suffering? And he took that question to the very common Vedic medical problem-solving model that would have been used by any physician or doctor in ancient India, 5th century BCE, the time of the Buddha. That problem-solving model is, what is the problem? What is the cause of the problem? Is there a solution? And how does one apply that solution? And when the Buddha brought the issue of suffering to this problem-solving model, he came up with what we now know as the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Four Noble Truths is the very heart and soul, the very DNA of all Buddhist thought. Now, Buddhism looks dramatically different from Singapore to Vietnam to Thailand. Uh, all throughout Asia, the, the statues look different and the teachings look quite different. But they all embrace the Four Noble Truths. And those are as follows. Life contains dukkha, or suffering. Now I'm going to come back to that word dukkha because that's a very, very tricky, problematic translation. It's not a direct translation to suffering. But for now, life contains suffering. We suffer due to our emotional reactivity, due to our craving. That's the second of the truths. The third is there's a way out. We can unplug that reactivity. We don't have to be doing that. And the fourth truth is the path, the way of life, the marga, which allows that reactivity to become unplugged 
like that. It instills in one an expanded awareness and consciousness. I'm going to get to that as we go. Now, the Four Noble Truths are, well, in Buddhist cultures, propositions to be believed in. So if you're born into a Buddhist culture, you're living in a Buddhist temple, you believe in these because you're a good Buddhist, right? A good Buddhist believes that life contains suffering, we suffer due to our craving, there is a possibility of ending that craving, and we believe in the Eightfold Path. But interestingly enough, that's not how the Buddha presented them when he gave his teaching on the Four Noble Truths. He didn't believe, he didn't give these as propositions to be believed in. He gave these as tasks to be performed. And so that's how I'm going to outline them now. So this is the Four Truths as a practice. And he started this teaching with the phrase, whatever arises, ceases. In fact, the way it's written in the text, he says, if it's of the nature of being born, it's of the nature of dying. And we'll come back to that. That comes into play quite intimately with the Four Noble Truths. And then he goes into the Four Noble Truths. He says, our dukkha is to be embraced. And luckily for us, somebody asked the Buddha, what do you mean by dukkha? He was quite explicit. He said, dukkha is birth, dukkha is aging, dukkha is sickness, dukkha is death. Dukkha is not getting what one wants. Dukkha is getting what one doesn't want. Dukkha is being separated from those who are dear, and dukkha is being close to those who aren't dear. And so when we look at that, we can really see that, well, dukkha is life. He's talking about all of the discomforts of life. And the Buddha said, dukkha paranya. Paranya, a Sanskrit word, which means in the round, to embrace our, our discomforts in the round, like that. Because the Buddha saw that we're so habitually ingrained to push away the discomforts of life and grasp at the comforts. And he saw that that was causing suffering. And in fact, that motion is what brings rise to much of human emotional reactivity. Which brings me to the second of the four. He said, emotional reactivity is to be let go of. So I'll just kind of give an example of what this might look like in contemporary terms. So, Let's say I'm driving down the highway, right? And I'm driving one of those six-lane highways, a big, big, wide highway. Everything's fine, cruising along, and there's a car next to me that just cuts in front of me, swerves across all six lanes to make sure they get to their exit on time. Abdomen clenches, chest clenches, heart starts pounding, fist clenches, jaw clenches up, right? Uh, sweat comes out of the brow anger, right? Then the fist raises up, the mouth opens, you feel foul, foul, feel foul, foul, filth, and the appropriate finger rises out of the fister, and maybe you pull the car over and you might even punch the guy in the jaw. Right? <laughs> That's anger. That's our emotional reactivity. The Buddha said we don't need to do that. Now I want to make it clear here, there's nothing wrong with anger. Anger is actually a natural, normal, human experience. In fact, it's a part of the fight-or-flight response. 
If we didn't have anger, we wouldn't be here. We would have fallen susceptible to many, many animals of prey. So there's nothing inherently wrong with anger. What is causing suffering is our emotional reactivity to what that anger feels like in our body. See, typically we're taught that there's two options with emotions. We either express it with anger, that would be yelling, kicking, punching, screaming, shouting, causing suffering, or we repress it back into the body. Oh, I'm a spiritual person, I meditate, what would they think of me if I got angry? <laughs> that causes sickness, that causes illness, that causes suffering too. Now the Buddha pointed out that there's a third option, often overlooked, that we can learn how to feel our emotions without expressing them, without repressing them. Because, as we know, everything that arises ceases, right? So we allow the anger, we allow the clenching in the abdomen, we allow the clenching in the shoulders, the jaw clenching up, the sweat coming out. It's actually not that bad. What really causes the suffering is then the thoughts that follow. I'm gonna get that guy, where did he get his driver's license? I'm gonna pull him over and knock him in the jaw. That's what's causing the suffering. And this is why meditation is so important, because in meditation we learn how to let those thoughts subside. So those are just thoughts, we don't need to do that, we let those thoughts go. We come back and feel the anger, because it will arise and pass like that. And the only thing that keeps the anger in place is the thinking process. That was one of the Buddha's great insights. It's our thoughts that keep the emotion in place. Letting the thoughts go, feeling the anger, it arises and passes like that. Now then, the third task, is to behold that cessation. There's an actual feeling when, let's use the example of anger again, when the anger arises and passes without expressing it, yelling, kicking, punching, screaming, shouting, without repressing it in the body, when we can just let that arise and pass, it actually feels really good. It feels good that we allow that anger to move through us without causing suffering for other people or ourselves. And because that feels good, we behold that cessation. The more we do that, we get confident in that it can happen that way. And we start to cultivate a way of life which allows that to happen more and more easily, more and more frequently, like that. And that's the fourth of the four, cultivating the way of life, cultivating the Eightfold Path. So that's the four truths put into practice as, a, as an art of happiness, if you will, like that. Now, as if that wasn't enough, the Buddha also taught in that first discourse the three Dharma seals, or the three marks of existence. Now, these are said to be the marks of existence because these are three aspects of reality that all beings share. We're all impermanent. We're all a non-self, and I'm going to unpack that in a moment. I know that sounds a little esoteric right now. And we all share the capability of nirvana. Now I have to make an admission here. This is a later school of Buddhism translation. Uh, the early schools of Buddhism, like the one you will encounter in Thailand, would translate the three marks of existence as uh, impermanence, non-self, and suffering. They consider suffering to be a universal experience, which I'll agree to, that definitely is. But the later schools of Buddhism thought that it's the suffering that leads us to the path to nirvana, like that. So in a way, they're related. 
you see that, like that. And I just think it's more optimistic to say nirvana. So that's why I tend to gravitate towards this one. Okay, I'm gonna unpack all three of these. Now, how I do deliver these three in this presentation is I walk us through how this might be taught to a student from a teacher. Now, one of the real beauties of these teachings is that you don't have to be a Buddhist to do them. These can be done by anybody from any walk of life, any belief system or no belief system. It really doesn't matter. So the student will go to the teacher and say, teacher, I'm ready to take on the teachings of impermanence. And that teacher will say, very good. Go meditate for about 10 to 15 minutes. Cultivate a space of silence. And by the way, if you have a chance to come and see me at 9 a.m. on C-Day mornings, we are cultivating this type of silence that I'm talking about. So you can get a taste of that uh, if you get a chance. Okay, back to the story. So the student will go and meditate for 10 to 15 minutes, cultivating this silence. And then in that silence, they will bring up a contemplation on how everything changes, how nothing stays the same. And we start as far away as the human mind can imagine. We start in the galaxies and the stars, contemplating the change happening out there on that level. Now, I don't know about you all, but I've been reading the news a lot lately, and I've been reading about these exoplanets with water and minerals, and then they're finding these black holes that they take photographs of now. There's a lot of change that's happening out in the universe. So contemplating that change. And then the practitioner is asked to come closer to contemplate the changes on planet Earth, or if you're from California, Mother Gaia. <laughs> and contemplating all of the change on beautiful Mother Gaia. And again, you only have to turn on the news, right, to see all of the weather patterns that are changing, volcanoes that are erupting and things like that, these storms. Uh, there's change happening there on Mother Earth. So then coming closer still to our own country, either the country we were born in or the country we live in now, it really doesn't matter, but contemplating the changes in that country from the country's inception to present day. That's quite a lot of change probably. Right? The borders might have changed, even the languages might have changed, the culture has probably changed, the legal structures have probably changed, the social structures have changed. So contemplating change in the country, coming closer still to our own neighborhood, contemplating change in our own neighborhood. Maybe we have new neighbors that have moved in or old neighbors moved out. Maybe somebody painted their house or mowed the lawn. There might be fresh snow on the ground. So contemplating all of that type of change coming closer still to our own household, contemplating change in our own home. Maybe a, a sibling or a son or daughter just left for college or somebody got married, or perhaps you got some new furniture or a new carpet. Contemplating all of that change. Coming in closer still to our own physical body, getting a good look and feel of what our body is like right now, and then comparing that to what our body looked and felt like five years ago and then 10 years ago, and 15 years ago, going back in five-year increments. And for sure, you'll see that there's quite a lot of change from you as a five-year-old to you now, right? Unless you're 10. So that's a lot of change happening physically. Then coming in closer still to our own mental structures, looking at our own beliefs, our own values, our own truths, getting a good feel for what that is like now, what it looks like, or what it looked like, rather, five years ago, 
10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And again, for sure, you'll see the truths and values that you hold now, well, hopefully were quite a bit different than when you were a five-year-old, right? So a lot of change happening there. Now the practitioner is asked to do this for three to six months, every day for a couple of hours a day. After all of that practice, all of that contemplation, it really starts to come home that everything is changing from the furthest universes and galaxies to your own beliefs and values. Everything's in a constant state of flux. There's no permanency. And the Buddha pointed this out because he saw that that's causing a great deal of suffering. Well, it's not the change that's causing the suffering. It's the human desire for things to be permanent in the face of change that's causing the suffering. And the Buddha thought, well, that's really ironic, actually, because here we are, this being that's in a constant state of change, grasping at a world that's in a constant state of change, trying to find something permanent. It doesn't exist. He realized that permanency only exists in the imagination of the human mind. Which brings me to the teachings of non-self. Because as I was just kind of alluding to, the self is too in that constant state of change. And again, I'll just kind of walk us through how this might be taught. The student will go to the teacher and say, teacher, I'm ready to take on these teachings of non-self. And the teacher will say, very good. Go sit in meditation for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then in this meditation, bring up what's known as insight questions. And I've listed a few of these insight questions here on the slide. So I'll just kind of walk us through a time lapse, if you will, of this meditation practice, what might unfold after a few months of this type of practice. So in the silence of meditation, the student brings up this question. What is this body? Well, this body is nothing really other than recycled dust and dirt. It comes spinning from the ground. It pretends to be very important. And then it goes back to the ground. So I can safely say I'm not my body. Well, what about my blood? Well, this blood's nothing but recycled water coming in and out all the time. Well, how about my breath? Well, the breath is nothing but recycled air moving in and out with each breath. So I can safely say I'm not my body, I'm not my blood, I'm not my breath. That's fine. Well, how about my thoughts? I mean, that really feels like me sometimes, right? Maybe I am my thoughts. The Buddha said, no, we're not our thoughts. Our thoughts are really just verbal structures that are given to us by our parents, our upbringing, our culture, our society, nowadays entertainment and social media. So I can safely say I'm not my thoughts. Well, how about my feelings? I mean, that really feels close to home. Maybe I am my feelings, right? The Buddha said, no, we're not our feelings either. I mean, we can sit here listening to a presentation for 45 minutes and have dozens of different feelings. But yet, here we are, we remain, right? The feelings move through our awareness like migratory birds moving through the sky. So we can safely say we're not our feelings. Well, what about my personality? I mean, that really feels like me. Maybe I am my personality. The Buddha said, no, you're not your personality. We develop our personality based on how we imagine other people see us. And both Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were very quick to affirm that insight 
many, many hundreds of years after the Buddha. Well, that looks pretty grim, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not my body, I'm not my blood, I'm not my breath, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I'm not my personality, then who am I? And that's exactly the question the meditators left with. And so that might look something like this. Everything's silent in meditation, and then, who am I? And then the mind will be, well, of course, I'm Chris, and I'm a philosopher, and I'm a teacher, and I'm a traveler, and I'm a Buddhist, and I'm a this, and I would love cats, and I like to cook. Thoughts, more thoughts. We let those thoughts go, come back to the silence. Who am I? Well, of course, you know, I'm a traveler, and I live in Thailand, and I like to do this, and I like to do more thoughts, more experiences. Who's having these experiences? And of course, the mind will try to answer it again and again and again. And we keep letting those answers go, coming back to the silence, asking the question again. Now, the practitioner will do that for six days, six weeks, six months, six years, six lifetimes. It doesn't matter how long. But eventually, that questioning, that inquiry, will lead the practitioner to nirvana. Now, nirvana is very, very tricky to talk about. Because anything that you can say about nirvana isn't nirvana. <laughs> nirvana is a non-verbal state. And so that's why the practitioner is asked to, asked to ask that question, use that inquiry to lead them into a non-verbal state. And anything verbal isn't it. So who am I? And that silence is left to remain there. So nirvana, a non-verbal state, a non-conceptual state. Now, the Buddha knew this challenge of teaching about nirvana, and yet he left eight definitions, eight ways of describing nirvana, very common in the canon to see these. He would say nirvana is the unborn, the deathless, the ceaseless, uh, the unconditioned, the stopping of craving, the stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, and the stopping of confusion. Now, I really just want to talk about those last four, because those really pertain to the presentation here today. The stopping of craving, greed, hatred, and confusion. Because we've all had moments like that, right? I mean, maybe you were up early this morning, and you were able to catch the sunrise, beautiful glowing orb coming up to the horizon, shimmering orange and red over the ocean, the gentle breeze touching your face, the smell of the ocean. Total silence. There's no craving, greed, hatred, or confusion in a moment like that. Or perhaps you had a long week at work, and you come home, you sit in your favorite chair, maybe you have a nice glass of wine, you put on your favorite relaxing music for me, that would be Mozart. Ah, there's no craving there, greed, hatred, or confusion. Perhaps you're holding the hands with the one you love, you're walking down the beach, you're listening to the sound of the waves lap against the shore, you're hearing the seagulls. There's no greed, hatred, or confusion there. No craving. Until the mind says, oh, why didn't I take the whole week off of work? It sucks that I have to go to work tomorrow. Why didn't I do that? Then you're back into that cycle. Then there's craving, right? And then you're back. But the Buddha said that we can behold that cessation. We can memorize what those moments feel like. He called those nirvanic moments. Those are a taste of nirvana. 
we memorize what that feels like because it feels good, we start to want to cultivate a way of life in which that happens more and more frequently. Now that way of life, according to the Buddha, doesn't lie out there in the vacation. It doesn't lie on the beach watching the sunset. That nirvanic moment is cultivated from the heart. And we'll see how. By bringing mindfulness to the Eightfold Path. Now the Eightfold Path, the fourth of the four truths, now there is a debate in Buddhist circles, is the Eightfold Path a prescription for enlightenment or a de description of enlightenment? And I actually see it as both. I see it as both. When I read the early text, absolutely the Buddha said, if you bring mindfulness to these eight aspects of life, you will experience more of these nirvanic moments. Absolutely said that. But from my own practice, from my students, from other practitioners that I've talked to, we all report that these eight aspects of life start to bear fruit after taking up a practice like this. So in a way, these eight aspects can be guideposts for a practice bringing fruit, for a practice of being effective. So both a prescription and a description. Now the Eightfold Path is traditionally broken up into an ethics branch, a wisdom branch, and a meditation branch. I'm just going to walk us through that. Okay, the ethics branch, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Now I need to talk about this word right, because it's wrong, <laughs> ironically enough. It's a bad translation. Uh, it kind of means right, uh, but it could be right as in the right measure, or the right amount, like that, the right, right amount of speech, the right amount of action like that. But a more appropriate translation from the original Pali is skillful or mindful, like that. So skillful speech, skillful action, and so forth. Okay, so starting with right speech or skillful speech, the Buddha said right speech is truthful speech, harmonious speech, relevant speech, and kind speech. But I want to point out here that these are actually the fruits of a particular type of practice. And he outlined many different techniques, many different ways of practicing right speech to bring about these fruit. I'll just give one in the interest of time, my favorite, and it's quite uh, simple to grasp. Not easy to do, but simple to grasp. So the idea is to listen to the sound of your own voice while you're speaking, as if you were listening to somebody else talk. And you can try this in your next conversation. In fact, if you have any questions for me after the presentation, when you give the presentation, listen to your voice as if you were listening to someone else speak. You'll notice some really interesting things. It's a little disorienting at first, I admit. But you'll start to notice your own verbal patterns. You'll start, oh, that's, that's my father talking. Or that's my mother talking. Or that's my dog talking. <laughs> Whatever it is, wherever you picked up your verbal patterns, you'll start to notice that, which is quite interesting. Now, the fruits of this technique is generally, generally truthful speech, relevant speech, harmonious speech, and kind speech, but not always. And the way the Buddha taught, well, he knew that life comes in shades of gray. He didn't want us to create a model of right speech and then try to live in that model. Right? If we try to say, I'm only going to speak relevantly, or I'm only going to speak truthfully, then we're creating a, a structure 
to try to repress our behavior into fitting. That's not how the Buddha taught. The Buddha wanted us to be in the present moment with our speaking, listening to the sound of the own voice while you talk. That puts you right into the present moment. Because he knew that, well, for example, a diplomat, right? Maybe truthful speech isn't always appropriate for the diplomat, or harmonious speech if you're in, in a position where you need to defend yourself, right? So he knew that there were these times where uh, that type of speech wouldn't be appropriate. More effective to be skillful in the present moment with speech like that. And nowhere is that idea more prevalent than the teachings of right action. Now, although the Buddha very rarely talked about a right versus wrong, almost never, uh, he did list what he called the 10 non-virtuous acts. And those are killing, stealing, inappropriate sexual relations, lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, gossip, harboring ill will, envy, and wrong view. I know, no fun, right? <laughs> so, so I'll just kind of outline how this might be taught again. So a student will go to the teacher and say, teacher, I'm ready to take on the teachings of right action. The teacher will say, very good. Go meditate in silence for 10 to 15 minutes. And then in the silence of meditation, visualize killing something. Well, that might seem kind of weird, right? When we think about meditating being this like very peaceful practice, following the breath, everything's calm. What's that about, right? Killing something. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean killing a being. Although, had I been woken up at four in the morning by a meditation gong and there was a mosquito nibbling on my shoulder, I might have inadvertently smacked a mosquito and then gone to the meditation hall that afternoon and used that as my practice. That might have happened. But to bring it into a little more contemporary terms, well, killing here really can mean just taking the life out of anything. For example, when I was upstairs this morning at nine, setting up for my meditation session, I asked the sound person to kill the music, right? Take the life out of the music. Or perhaps you're in a business meeting and one of your constituents has an idea, but you know that, that idea has no merit. You need to kill that idea, take the life out of that idea. And so the practitioner can bring that into the meditation because when we take the life out of something, when we take the life out of anything, whether it's a mosquito, uh, music, or an idea, it has a corresponding sensation in the body, the mind, and the heart, before the killing, during the killing, and after the killing. And so the meditator is allowed to memorize what that feels like, so that when they go into that business meeting and that person has an idea, and the 20 ideas before that that person had were all bad, but the 21st idea is actually very good. You move forward to take the idea's life away, but you feel it in your body before you do that. You feel it in your mind, you feel it in your heart. So the practice is allowing the practitioner to use their body as a barometer for right action, present moment awareness, like that. And now the practitioner will meditate on that type of killing for two to three weeks. And then they'll do the opposite, meditating on giving life for two to three weeks, for the same reason. You could be in that business meeting and maybe that person is proposing an idea, and that idea, well, their 20 ideas before were very good, but the 21st idea is bad. 
So you don't want to give life to that bad idea, right? So this puts you in the present moment. You feel it in the body before you give life to that idea. Say, oh, that's not such a good idea after all. And you can respond more skillfully to the present moment. Beautiful practice. Okay, right livelihood. This is kind of a soul-searching practice, actually. The practitioner is invited to trace the activities of their life, trying to really uh, pinpoint, if you will, uh, the certain core values that keep manifesting throughout their life, and then researching, trying to find a way uh, to make a living which matches those core values. The meditation branch of the Eightfold Path, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And again, if you can come and see me on C-Day mornings at 9 a.m., you'll get a little more of a flavor for what I'm about to unpack right now. So this is pertaining to a meditation practice, right effort. Now, right effort includes setting up a place in your abode that's conducive to meditation, perhaps having a nice comfortable chair or cushion. If you're particularly religious or spiritual, you might have artifacts or things like that inspire your practice. Uh, probably not having a computer or a phone nearby would be helpful as well, like that. So a place that's conducive to meditation. Finding a teacher, very important for meditation. Meditation is like learning a language. You can do it on your own. There's programs like Rosetta Stone and things like that. But having a teacher is really, really quite helpful. And also finding a community of meditators is also quite helpful and part of right effort. Um, somebody who you can, you can share your meditation experiences with. Now, if there's nothing near by where you live and you're interested in finding a community, there's hundreds of online meditation communities nowadays. So it's very easy right, on, right at your fingertips. Right mindfulness or skillful mindfulness. This is pointing at the actual meditation practice itself. So what we do in meditation is we come to the silence and experience our body, our mind, and our heart through the eyes of non-judgment. And that non-judging quality of meditation is very, very important. And it was the great sage Krishnamurti who made the outstanding statement, the highest form of human intelligence is the ability to experience oneself through the eyes of non-judgment. Because the more we experience ourselves through non-judgment, the more we experience others through non-judgment. Another great way that these teachings allow us to be happier. Right concentration, again, pertaining to the meditation. This is the idea that the human being always has the capability to return to the present moment, right? And I'm sure all of you at least once during this 40 minutes or so has been distracted, right? But you're able to come back, hopefully, to that handsome, dapper man on the stage rambling on about Buddhism, <laughs> hopefully. And at least you are now, right? So, that, and it is that feeling. You get distracted, you go way out on a limb, and then you bring yourself back to right here, right now. And that's what we're doing in meditation over and over again. We get distracted, we come back, distracted, we come back over and over. The wisdom branch of the Eightfold Path, right view and right cognition. Now, right view, this is right out of Buddhist orthodoxy, and it's really a recap of everything that I've just talked about. Uh, it, 
right view is embracing the three dharma seals, impermanence, non-self, and nirvana or suffering, depending on the type of Buddhism being practiced. Uh, recognizing how everything that arises passes, everything that is of the nature of being born will die, like that. Uh, practicing the Four Noble Truths, life contains suffering, we suffer due to our reactivity, we can unplug that reactivity, we don't need to do that, and we do that by bringing mindfulness to all aspects of our life. And then right cognition, the last part of the Eightfold Path. Now this is the idea that we can actually bring a sense of mindfulness to the type of thoughts that we have. The Buddha pointed out that we're often divided into thoughts based in fear or thoughts based in love, and we have a choice there. So again, I'll just give an example of what that might look like. Driving down the road again, but this time I'm going way too fast. I'm just speeding down the highway, tearing down the highway. And I look down at the speedometer, I recognize I'm going too fast, so I slow the car down. Do I slow the car down because I'm afraid of getting a speeding ticket? Or do I slow the car down because I love my life, I love the passengers in my car, I love the drivers on the road? You'll notice the end result is exactly the same, right? I still slowed the car down. But the intention behind that result is totally different. And the energy that one puts out from that intention is totally different. And I think you'll find that if you're walking through life with your intentions based in love, then rather than based in fear, you will be walking with Buddha and the art of happiness. Now I am coming to the end of the presentation. I just wanted to leave here with uh, what's known as the Kalama Sutta. This was a teaching given from the Buddha to his principal disciples. A sutta, any sutta, is a teaching given from the Buddha to his principal disciples. And interestingly enough, the word sutta has as its root word uh, the same as the medical term to sutra. And it actually means the same thing. It means a bringing together or a melting together of, of the heart and mind from the Buddha to his students, like that. So here's the Kalama Sutta. It's very short. Do not be satisfied with hearsay or with tradition or with legendary lore. Do not be satisfied with what has come down in scriptures or with conjecture, or with logical inference, or with weighing evidence, or with liking for a view after pondering over it. Do not be satisfied with somebody else's abilities, or with the thought, this monk is wise, he is our teacher. When you know in yourselves that these things are wholesome, blameless, commended by the wise, and being adopted and practiced, they will lead to welfare, tranquility, and happiness. Then one should practice and abide by these. So the Buddha very clearly saying, don't take my word for it. Don't believe anybody else. Try them out for yourself and see what you think. So I like to leave with that. That does bring me to the end of my presentation this afternoon. Uh, this is my little commercial break. Uh, this is the book that I've written. It's entitled Such Sweet Thunder, Healing the Wounds Between Self and Other. It is a meditation guide. So if you're interested in meditation, uh, do go to the website. The book is only $3.49 because 
Amazon links to get paid. I tried to give it away for free. I couldn't do it. Uh, but everything else on the website is for free. Lots of meditation resources there, articles that I've had published, interviews and podcasts and so forth. So at your leisure, when you have time and good internet, uh, do feel free to check it out. Thanks for coming. I will be back here tomorrow morning, I think at 10.15, giving a talk on the meditation practice that the Buddha did the night of his enlightenment. So hope to see you there. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you.